Well, if you would turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles and go to Ezekiel chapter 16, I'm going to begin by reading the text on which our sermon is based this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, it will be on the screen as we, as we move through the text. And I will tell you before we get going, I, it's, it's usually not my way to start any sort of uh, like apologizing before I even preach, but I'm just giving you a heads up that commentators are widely agreed that this is the most uncomfortable chapter in the entire Bible. And so we move forward in the confidence that it is still God's Word. Discomforting us doesn't affect whether or not it is the Word of God. And so perhaps say a prayer just within the next five minutes quietly in your own heart that I would, that I would preach the Word of God with that same kind of confidence because it is still the Word of God in spite of any discomfort we may have with it. And I think, in fact, the text is uncomfortable because it's supposed to be. It's supposed to unsettle us. And so with that, let us read beginning in... Um, Oh, goodness, I lost my spot. Let's see here. Verse 23, sorry. Verse 23, chapter 16 of the book of Ezekiel. After all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord Yahweh. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies. The daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. And so we confess again, with renewed confidence. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. So I want to ask you, I want to start off with this question, what is the worst kind of sin you can commit? There are endless debates about that. Jesus, of course, at one point in the Gospels, talks about the unpardonable sin, which I think from the evidence has to do with observing the work of Jesus and refusing to believe in him, and even going so far as to saying it's the opposite of the work of Jesus, not only will I not believe in him, but I'll say it's the work of the devil. And on the last day, those who persist in that sin will not be forgiven. It's interesting in the uh, present day Jewish tradition, the unpardonable sin is a violation of the third commandment. That is to, to do something in God's name that is not in fact of God. Based on the text this morning, I want to offer to you, I think, very much in line with both of those perspectives. So not, not, not contradicting either of those perspectives that I just gave you. 
that the worst kind of sin we can commit is the one for which we don't repent, the one which we don't leave behind, but continue in without any shame. And so rather than limiting it to a certain kind of sin, I would say that the sin of what historically has been called contumacy, that is continuing on in the sin without repentance, without, uh, without stopping, without ceasing, without pausing, with, you know, sort of things, just to keep carrying on in the sin without any, without any shame is the worst kind of sin you can commit. How do I know that? Because that's, what ha- that's what's happening in the text, and it would seem to me, I'm open to correction on this, that it's hard to find harsher language for sin than we find here in Ezekiel. So if, if we were to go just, just alone on like how angry a particular kind of sin, what kind of wrath a particular sin brings on us, the, the anger of the Lord, we'd have to settle here and say that this idolatry has brought Israel into the worst, one of the worst condemnations you'll ever read in all of the Bible. So what does this image mean that we're given? This picture of, the word used is whoredom, harlotry. What does the image mean? Well, imagine a man who, who marries a woman and gives her everything. That's what happened in the first part of Ezekiel. Israel, this sort of lost, forgotten, penniless, worthless, dying in her blood orphan, is found and, and, and provided for, and she grows up, and she's given to her husband, the Lord. Israel is given to the Lord. That's the image that he uses. And so imagine a man who, who marries a young woman and gives her everything. She goes from having nothing to having everything, everything she ever dreamed of. Love, faithfulness, a home, food, clothing, and so on. And she takes all those gifts and uses them to attract the attention of a new boyfriend. In fact, any boyfriend she can find. Where we begin this morning is that you do not have to be a Christian to be scandalized by that story. Even unbelievers could hear a story like that and, and say, that's disgusting. Right? The person who does that, you don't want to be their friend. And so that's, that's, what the, that's, that's the idea the picture communicates. But, then, but so why? why? Why the picture? Why the uncomfortable language? Why did the pastor just say whoredom like six times while he's reading the Bible? Like, that's, it, it's uncomfortable. And we should admit, then, that the picture painted here is pretty stunning in its intensity and its explicit language. In fact, if you'll pardon me, the, the English translation handles, especially this chapter, very, very gently. Exploring some of the Hebrew as I worked on this sermon, I thought, if I said some of this, we'd have to mark it unsafe for children when we posted it to YouTube. That should compel us to ask a few questions. First, why does God speak this way? This is the Lord that is speaking. This is not Ezekiel dreaming up an image, right? As as though Ezekiel is like a sort of perverted prophet who has these images in his head and then is sharing them. This is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. Why does God speak this way? There's got to be a reason. Some of this is language fit for the locker room, but it's the Lord Almighty speaking of His disgust and revulsion for Israel's idolatry. And I think maybe, just maybe, this text is then particularly fit for our time because in our day, we tend to look for reasons to excuse our sin. I'm going to come back to that. 
But we do. We, we, are, we are hardwired, as it were, and I think this is intensified by our cultural moment, to excuse our sin, right? It's just my personality. It's the way that I am wired. I really can't help it. It's just how I am. It's my own self-expression and so on. And we tend especially to protect and excuse, I would say, sexual sins. I mean, in terms of our wider culture as well. And, 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 and this text hits us in both places. For one, it calls out sin and idolatry for the unbearable, unavoidable, blasphemous, adulterous scandal that it is. It doesn't allow us to pass blame. And for two, it uses the language of sexual immorality to provoke this heavy sense of disgust and betrayal. And so I want to start by telling you about a concept that's present in the Bible and it's been talked about almost for as long as basically there have been Christians. And it's the concept of disordered loves. The idea that when we sin, the issue in our heart is an issue of love. That we are loving something more than God. That is, you have, you know, if you can imagine having a list of loves ordered from you know, greatest to least, your, your loves, sin is when your loves are out of order okay, on the list of priority and importance. And so our problem then, our our human problem, the problem we have in our sinful flesh is that we love our sin. That is the problem that's being confronted in the text. That that the Lord is saying to Israel, your problem is not simply that you sin, but that you love to sin. You chase after your sin. Our problem is that we love our sin and we need new hearts to love rightly, to love what we ought to love. And so, back to the earlier question, what is the worst kind of sin? The worst kind of sin is that we love what we shouldn't love and we hate what we shouldn't hate. We love what God calls hateful, we hate what God calls lovely. And so that's not a particular sin, you know, to to name a particular kind of transgression, but it is a particular quality of shamelessness about sin. The problem is what we love. The problem of sin is that we love our sin. We need new hearts to love rightly. And so this text teaches us at least three things about this worst kind of sin and how to keep watch over our lives so that we don't fall into it. First, it's a sin that grows as shame shrinks. Okay? So it's a, it's, it's, it's a sin that grows as shame shrinks. Second, it's a sin that doesn't satisfy us, but it just keeps us coming back for more. So it doesn't actually satisfy the sinner. It, it, it keeps them coming back. And then third, it's a sin that makes our hearts sick, makes our hearts ill. So there's three things. The first one then, the most dangerous sin is sin that grows your shame, or, or, excuse me, is sin that grows as it, as it shrinks your sense of shame. And so look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23, and after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. It's like he has to stop and say, what's gone wrong with you? What's gone wrong with you? He says, verse 24, you built yourself a vaulted chamber, made yourself a lofty place in every square. And at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination. 
Okay? And so what's, what's the imagery here? Building, in, in essence, altars. This is religious language, but not just altars. Okay? It would be one thing to say, you, you built a temple to that false god of the Babylonians, and that's really offensive. That would be enough. But what, what this, the, what the, the idea that's being conveyed here is, you built little idolatrous temples on every street corner you could find. So e- Everywhere you're multiplying these things. And, and an abomination, the idea of taking that which God has made beautiful, meaning worship, and, and twisting it into something ugly and evil and sinful. And so I know just in passing, it's good to remember, rebellion, spiritual rebellion, usually begins with religion. <laughs> and I don't mean religion is a bad word. I mean that often the worst kinds of sins begin in ways that still feel very religious. Right? It's something to keep watch on. That just because something has the apparel of religion does not mean that it is good. In a rightly, but furthermore, not just externally, but internally, is the shamelessness of it right? that's talked about. That is, you're, you're building these little idolatrous temples on every street corner where everyone can see you, and everyone can see you coming in and going out, and everyone can see you engaged in this idolatry. There's an absence of shame. An absence of shame. And as I thought about this text, I thought, man, what might be a parallel then? Because we don't build idolatry temples on the street corners, I don't think, last I checked. What exactly would, would the parallel be? Best, I, best I've got for this morning for you is probably social media, right? Just the idea that you can broadcast whatever you want to whomever you want, to whatever degree you want, and a lot of times with, like, pride and shamelessness, even if it's something that you ought not say. Part of the issue then, what, what, what this text is revealing, is this reality, it's, it's true of all sinners, that ongoing, indwelling sin, it, it starts to have this darkening effect on your heart, where, where your conscience kind of goes numb progressively, getting more and more numb. You know, like, we've, like if you put an a ice pack on your arm or whatever, and it, it doesn't go numb immediately, but if you keep it on there a long time, just steadily you start to lose feeling, right? That's kind of the idea. Paul talks about this, uh, St. Paul talks about this in the New Testament, in the first chapter of Romans. He says something that, I mean, it's really just one of the most uh, stunning pictures of sin and its progression in human life. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice he didn't say they don't know the truth. He says they suppress it, right? Try to ignore it, blind themselves to it as it were. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His His invisible attributes, namely eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I don't want you to miss that. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That means that persisting in sin will begin to affect the way you think 
and the way your, your heart is oriented towards your sin. You will begin to get spiritually stupid. Your, that is your ability to perceive the scandal of your own sin. Your, your conscience is going to get numb. The point here is not that you get to determine when that is for somebody else, by the way. You know, it's not that you get to judge when somebody's reached a point of no return because God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can always work a miracle in somebody's heart. The point is, though, that the longer sin is cultivated in the heart, the more and more the conscience will grow numb to it. It's like if you've ever walked into a room and there's some kind of foul scent in the air. You know, you, like you walk into a room and you're just like, ooh, what, what is that? Where is it coming from? That smells gross. Uh, like something burning or, or spoiled food or something like that. And then, and then uh, in a lot of cases, even with some of the most offensive smells, if you stay in the room long enough, you, you, your nose kind of just grows accustomed to it, right? And it's not until you like leave the room and then come back in, you're like, oh, there that is again, right? But if you stay in the room, you, you, you get used to it. Sin is like that in some ways. So, so what, is this, what is the text then calling us to? What is God calling us to and to learn from the failures and the idolatry and the sin of Israel. First is we have to recognize our shame. I mean, it does amaze me sometimes when people talk about sin and they say, well, you know, yes, I, I did that, but, but if, if I did that and it was wrong, you're not allowed to correct me because that would be shaming me. And my response to that is not that I go around like correcting everyone willy-nilly and their sin, but, but what I'm trying to say is that if somebody is engaging in behavior that is shameful, they ought to experience shame for it. So the presence of shame itself is not a bad thing. If the behavior connected to it is shameful. And I thought about this language of building chambers and lofty places. And again, the, 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 the closest I can get to that is social media, the, the public exercise of our sin. Uh, it's the place where we most loudly excuse our arrogance or our lack of self-control or our rage or our weakness in, you know, in, in wanting to be like well thought of by others or our pride in wanting to be on the right team or advocating for the right tribe. Now, briefly, we tend to excuse sin in one of three ways. I'm going to go through these quickly and I'll come back to them later. But three main ways we tend to excuse our sin. Number one, we call it harmless. Number two, we call it unavoidable. And number three, we call it de- deserved. Or like we, 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 should, we should have it. it, it's ours. We earned it. So harmless, unavoidable, deserved. The three ways we lie to ourselves about our sin. So that which is harmless, let me start there. This is part of the reason for Ezekiel using this stunning, embarrassing language. God is saying, this is not harmless. This is betrayal. This is blasphemy of the worst kind. It's, it's a violation of the second commandment. It's really interesting that our, our larger catechism actually uses Ezekiel's language to explain violations of the second commandment, idolatry. So if you look, this is kind of, uh, I've, I've kind of modified or, or modernized a bit of the language, but uh, larger catechism question 110, what reason is added to the second commandment so that we might obey it? And the answer The reason added to this commandment emphasizes its importance in these words, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, in addition to calling attention to God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us and His fervent zeal for His own worship 
and His revengeful indignation against all false worship as being a spiritual whoredom. You see it. So it's, that's language right out of Ezekiel 16. Right? So, first bit then, the sin is not harmless. Second, we excuse it by saying it's unavoidable. Have you ever convinced yourself that your sin is unavoidable? Sort of like, well, what else could I have done, really? It's a dismissal of responsibility. It's a dismissal of, of the call to self-control. It's a kind of prideful self-pity that excuses your behavior because you're like, well, I, I really couldn't have done anything else. You know, because of my circumstances or because of my past or because of my addiction. More on that in a moment. The third, that which is deserved. So that's like, well, I really deserve this. You know, I worked really hard. I'm really tired. And we protect our sin and treat it like, like it's a break from the harshness of life. And we're really owed that break. Do you see how blasphemous that is? You are, in essence, saying to God, this life you have given me is really unjust and unfair and inexcusable. And so you really owe me this. You owe me looking the other way while I indulge or or whatever. What's the problem there? The problem with all three is that we love our sin, disordered love, and we we fail to see what God has said about our sin, and we need new hearts if we're ever to love rightly. And so that was, that was the first point then, that this sin increases, expands, while it, while it shrinks our capacity for shame. Secondly, it actually fails to satisfy us. Sin actually, it invites us in, as it were, with promises of satisfaction. You'll be like God, right? Going back to the garden. But it doesn't satisfy. And we're given a picture here of how Israel's sin took root and grew. Namely, that she engaged in idolatry, worshiping the gods of the nations. And, and what, what Ezekiel's words kind of do here is, is it, it, we get a little a bird's eye view of, of, of Israel's history of idolatry so far. We begin with Egypt in verse 26, where we read, You played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring, provoking me to anger. Then we go to the Assyrians, verse 28. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Okay, so the absence of satisfaction here is the, is the focus. And then finally to Chaldea, also known as Babylonians. So he says, you, you multiplied your whoring there as well, and even here you were not satisfied. The worst kind of sin, what is the worst kind of sin? It is one that takes root and begins to form in you a hunger that cannot be satisfied. In the therapeutic and medical fields, we have a word for this, we call it Addiction. And so what do Christians do with addiction? Well, first we recognize that the human mind and the human body can feel and be helpless against cycles of temptation and sin and failure that can grow into an addiction. Second, we recognize that an addicted person can really feel helpless to fight their addiction. And in many cases, they are helpless or powerless. That's why they need to go beyond themselves. Third, we assert, nevertheless, that an addicted person is still responsible for their decisions and for every second of sin, every moment of failure, and every bit of harm that they do to others. So do we say, well, you know, so-and-so is an addict, it's not really his fault. No, we don't. Addiction doesn't remove fault. Addiction does not atone for sin. 
I think the best we can do when it comes to the language of addiction is say, rather than say, oh, you know, it's not really his fault, I think it would be better to say he is enslaved by the weakness of an addiction. I think that's, that's a bit... It's a bit closer to the way the Bible paints the picture. Now, two things about that language. Enslavement means we do acknowledge the power of like, compulsive behavior that can take root. But the word weakness very naturally should immediately lead you to think, well, that which is weak is hopefully going to become strong later. In other words, he perhaps now is enslaved, but by no means do we entertain the idea that the slavery is hopelessly permanent. The issue with addiction is the same as with other cases of sin. Addiction is a matter of loves and disordered love. Really, again, sin is about disordered love, most fundamentally. And that in a moment of temptation and sin, you are loving something more than God, which is how Ezekiel is presenting this. Chasing after other, other lovers, other boyfriends, other loves. And in that moment saying... This is what we do when we sin. We say this thing and having it makes me happier than Jesus. Do you realize then that one of the, one of the blasphemies we can commit is we make Christ seem boring. We make Jesus seem bland and tasteless. Boring and secondary. Now, I am not saying, please hear me church, I'm not saying that like Jesus is boring and so it's up to you to make him exciting. That is the blasphemy that's pervaded a lot of evangelicalism for the last 50 years. I'm saying he calls you to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And he actually means to hold the affection of your soul tighter than whatever's on your screens. The cases of addiction are just that. They're cases, individual cases. And so different cases require different sorts of solutions. But it is vital that we do not dismiss our sin with the categories of clinical problems, is what I'm saying. Right? If you want more on this, by the way, there's a great book by a guy named Edward Welch, uh, spelled like the, the grape juice, I think. Uh, but Edward Welch called Addiction, A Banquet in the Grave. Um, really, really helpful Christian and biblical perspectives on these things. And so it's, it's vital we don't boil our sin problem down to something that we simply dismiss with clinical language. Our problem is that we love our sin and we need new hearts to love rightly. What else do we learn? The third thing that we learn about this most dangerous sin is it makes our hearts sick. Look at verse 30. Listen to these words. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord Yahweh, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. Our problem is that we love our sin. We need new hearts to love rightly. We have sick hearts. That's the problem of the sinner, is that our hearts get twisted up. This is important because we tend to think, uh, again, culturally, at least the, the sort of language of our culture is that if you have an impulse in your heart, you should probably obey it. And if you don't, it's going to have its way with you eventually. Listen to your heart, follow your heart, and so on. But look, the heart is, no, is not only untrustworthy, the heart of the sinner gets sick. And not all the English translations handle it as sick of heart, but the ESV does, and I think they got it right. The, re the, reason, the reason not all translations handle it this way is, is because literally in Hebrew it says, how feverish 
is your passion, or perhaps even how feverish is your rage. The, the idea being, you're swept up in a kind of frenzied, feverish sickness that controls your heart. So don't think of the picture of sickness as like, oh, I'm, I'm home in bed and can barely move. This is more like the sickness of someone who's like overdosed or something like that and is in the middle of some kind of manic frenzy. In fact, if we read on, we discover the most horrid thing about this sickness in verse 31. You did all these things, deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. So we hear again the public nature of this idolatry, but it's worse than that. The Lord says, you didn't even ask for money. Do you see how scandalous this is? There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing motivating or driving the children of Israel except the sheer, simple love of sin. And what does that do to our hearts? It makes us sick. It's evidence of sickness, and it also keeps making us sick. Because it gives, it gives to the heart an unquenchable thirst that can't be satisfied. This is how the sin of Jerusalem was so horrific and so different. I mean, so if we jump down to verse 34, it's almost unbearable in like the, the ordinary way it's expressed, those last few words, just, therefore you were different. What a mild way to put it. That's a nice way of saying you've even managed to pervert perversion itself. And in so doing, the children of Israel sent themselves into compounding sin, an unquenchable thirst that could not be satisfied. That is what sin does to our hearts if it goes untreated, to use a medical term. It's like Turkish delight from the White Witch in Narnia. The more you eat of it, the, the, the more you crave it. Right? And so the more you get of it, the less it satisfies. It's food that creates more hunger. And so the deeper your sick heart falls in love with sin and idolatry, the more deeply you become enslaved to a hunger that can't satisfy. This is why, again, St. Augustine, uh, he was probably the one who, who had the most to say about disordered love. Some of the worst sins we commit, it's not just because we might hate our neighbor or be angry at something somebody has done or be dissatisfied with life, but rather because the things we love are in the wrong order. We put our money before our family or before God. We put, we can, you can even put your children before God. You can even put your children before your spouse. Or you can put your work before your family. You can put your pleasure and your leisure before your family. If you're not mad at me yet this morning, meditate on that. Do you put your pleasure or your leisure before you, your family? Lots of marriages die slowly because some men love hunting and fishing more than their families. Did I say it's a sin? No, I didn't. I said it means, I said loving it more than your family is a sin. Loving it more than the Lord is a sin. Disordered love is the problem because we love our sin and we need new hearts to love rightly. So what do we do with disordered love? Okay? Maybe, maybe if, you're, if you're hearing me say this, what do I do with that? And I, I think some of you are probably hoping I won't say, just try really, really hard to do better. And that's not what I'm going to say. Because you immediately know, most of you know, that's hopeless. Most of us intuitively 
No, I th- you know, somebody just asking, well, what do we do? Or saying, well, this is what you just have to do. Just, just put these steps in and you'll be good. It usually doesn't make you a better person. It usually <laughs> makes you a worse person because it just tends to aggravate whatever's wrong with you in the first place. <clears throat> and I think nobody talks about this better than, than Augustine. In his book, The Confessions, he reflects on this moment in his youth where at one point he and his, he and his buddies break into a private orchard and they steal a bunch of pears. Right? Pears. Okay? And later, he's, later in life, after his conversion, he's reflecting on this moment in his past. And when he, when he does, he, says, he, he essentially says that that moment was one of the darkest most vile, most evil moments of his life. And when I read that for the first time, I thought, really, dude? That's the worst you've got? You broke into an orchard and stole some pears. Okay, you stole fruit. I mean, if that's the worst you've got in terms of your sin, I would, I would say at first blush you're doing pretty good. But what makes the worst sort of sin the worst sort of sin? Augustine asked himself... Why did I steal the pears? Because he comes to this conclusion. I wasn't even hungry. And even if I was hungry, I didn't even like pears. This is why it was sinful and particularly scandalizing. He said, I got caught up in the revelry of my friends who said, we should steal those pears. And I did. And then I took them and threw them to pigs. And he said, this was one of the worst sins of my life because I didn't even steal to, to eat. I stole simply for the sheer thrill of sinning. Simply because God said, do not steal. And I said, oh, you think you're the boss of me, huh? And he realized that's the worst sin of all. When we say to God, I just want the sin because I love the sin. And I hate you because you tell me I can't have it. So how then, how then do we fight, Christians? How then do we fight? Briefly, three things. Realize the wickedness of sin. That's what Israel didn't do. That's why God is using such sh- shocking, stunning language. Because they don't realize the wickedness of their sin. So we're called to, to recognize, realize the wickedness of our sin. Second, repent of it. And third, remember the atonement. Okay? So realize the wickedness, re- repent of the sin, and remember the atonement. So, so realize that sin always conceals its wickedness, so to speak, right? I mean, when we're tempted by sin, sin's not usually coming at us with, this is so evil. <laughs> this is so unbearably evil. No, normally, again, comes at us as those three things I mentioned earlier, harmless, unavoidable, deserved. And so... That's why we need the Word of God to continually interpret for us what is and is not sin. Second, you need to repent of the sin. That is, to identify it for what it is. To call it sin and then to turn from it and turn to Christ. To turn from your sin, to call it sin, not just like imperfection or mistake, but sin, to turn from it and turn to Christ. The one who forgives all of your sins and confess Him as Lord and receive His forgiveness. I want to share with you, I think one of the best ways I can put this is what repentance looks like, or maybe what repentance sounds like. 
It's going to be up here on the screen. It's, it's a prayer from a book uh, called The Valley of Vision, uh, which is a, a little prayer book I found very helpful. Uh, it's a collection of uh, Puritan prayers. And I, I'm just going to read this to you because I, I find it so helpful. It says, O God of grace, you have imputed my sin to my substitute. You have imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears, the tears I cried in repentance, are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I'm always standing clothed in filthy garments. And by grace, I am always receiving a change of clothing. For you always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country, always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and you always bring forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Face hurricanes in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. So realize the wickedness. Repent of the sin. And finally, remember the atonement. And for that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little. <laughs> that is, I'm going to jump over to the end of chapter 16, which is where I'll be jumping over probably in the rest of the sermons on this chapter. And I'm going to read this to you, beginning in verse 59. Thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger. That's on a sermon to come. And I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. That you may remember and be confounded. You're going to get your shame back, appropriate to your sin. And never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord Yahweh. Do you hear the words of gospel in there? For you, sinner. These are words God gave to His people in anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And these promises then are yours and mine today, right now. He says, you will remember your ways. Verse 61. You will remember your ways. You will then be ashamed. That's later in the same verse. You will be ashamed. So this is actually really good news. God says, I'm going to restore your shame to you. Not so just that you feel bad, but that you appropriately feel bad about your badness. And he says, you will know that I am the Lord. This is exactly what they forgot in the midst of all kinds of idolatry. That you may remember and be confounded. That is, you will have the right response to sin in your soul. Is that not good news? That God says, I'm going to give you, give to you the proper response to your sin. 
When will that happen? End of verse 63. When I atone for you. When I atone for you and all that you've done, declares the Lord. This is precisely what our Lord Jesus has done. He set us free from our sin by forgiving all of our sins so that all who come to Him in repentance do not hear the terrifying voice of the judge in chapter 16, but the voice of the Father saying, Come in, son, and welcome. Come in, daughter, and welcome. We talk a lot. I know Christians talk a lot about how crazy and and mixed up and perverted our world is and is becoming. How, how sinful and twisted our culture is. But you know the one thing, or maybe it's at least one of the few things our wider culture gets right. At the end of the day, our culture believes you can evaluate your virtue by the things you love and the things you hate. Right? A lot of the fights in the, in the so-called culture wars are because people feel like other people are not loving the right things and hating the right things. Loving the right people and hating the right people. Well, they're on to something. This idea you can evaluate virtue by what you love and what you hate is right, actually. Where it goes wrong is disordered love. We love things we should hate. We hate things we should love. And God says, when I atone for your sins, you will love that which you should love, starting with me. All of your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor. And you will hate the things you should hate, starting with your own sin and selfishness, and your own pity parties, and idolatry, your own excuses, and your own sick heart that longs for healing. Because our problem is that we love our sin. We need new hearts to love rightly. And Jesus Christ has died to conquer sin and death and break the slavery of your disordered loves. Sometimes it's going to take five seconds. Sometimes it's going to take 40 years. But he comes to heal the sickness of your heart and of mine. How does he do it? By forgiving our sins. Forgiving our sins, giving us new hearts to love what he loves and to love rightly. And so do you recognize the sickness in your own heart this morning? Where is sin creeping in? Where is there an absence of shame for a sin you've been protecting? What medicine is there for sick hearts? What medicine has God given? Come and eat. Come and drink. Come to the table. Eat and drink. Rejoice. For your king comes to you, offering you atonement, forgiveness, and life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, help our hearts that are so easily twisted to be restored, to have new hearts continually. Deliver us, Lord, from the sins that would threaten to consume us and instead give us new hearts, repentant hearts that delight in the glory of Jesus and His cross. Feed us now with more of what we need most. You, our Savior, and your promises. Amen. Amen.